Well, with summer comes heat, and with heat comes hazard. As a loyal listener of the Live Inspired podcast, you know by now that Keeley Companies is the leader and the single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, development, logistics, and wireless. Keeley Companies also understands there is nothing more important than returning their team members home safely to the families each and every day. As we begin to head into the summer months, their very own safety, Ray, and I know Ray well, shares three keys to staying safe in the summer heat. Here they are. Rest, water, and shade. That's right. If you're going to be outside in these summer months, do not forget the importance of rest and water and shade. By empowering every team member to do their part and follow practical tips for safety, it's clear why Keeley Companies is recognized for their world-class safety program. You can learn more about it and about them at Keeley Companies by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We have an opportunity week after week to bring you people who inspire, who educate, who transform, who have overcome, who serve, who model what it looks like truly to live inspired and to live inspired regardless of the adversity they may face or how they may feel about their likelihood of being successful at what they endeavor to do. Well, people, friends, family, leaders, today we have an awesome example of a friend who lives inspired. His name is Todd Tillman. Despite absolutely no musical training, despite Never once singing outside of a church, Todd Tillman decided to risk it all, drive through the night, end up in Atlanta, and try at a recital for The Voice. The Voice. He had seemingly nothing in his favor, had no practice, had no street cred. He was old. I mean, really, really, really old. 41 years old. I know people, that's hard for many of us to hear, myself included, but for the voice and by their standards, it's ancient. And yet, and I love that phraseology, and yet Todd Tillman eventually not only makes it through that recital, is invited to Hollywood, goes in front of the four celebrity judges, and ultimately wins the 18th season of The Voice. Yeah, becoming the oldest and I think most joyful winner ever of The Voice. He has a new book coming out called Every Little Win, How Celebrating Small Victories Can Lead to Big Joy. He is a father. He is a pastor. He is a singer. And this man is on fire with life. In the midst of the season that you and I find ourselves navigating, we thought it might be really great to bring on a friend of ours who can inspire you to not only show up at the arena, but to believe that your best days are in front of you. And I can think of no one better at this than my friend and now yours. His name is Todd Tillman. And before I bring him on, let me give you one more reason to stick around. 
near the end, I'm going to give Todd an opportunity to sing a little song live, specifically to one of the most important people in my life. So stick around for that. You won't want to miss it. So my friends, buckle up, get ready for the ride as I introduce you now to my buddy. His name is Todd Tillman. Todd, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, man. I really appreciate you inviting Dude, it is an honor. And we we record a little bit before we even go live. And I wish we just played it all because <laughs> I feel like I'm having a coffee wet right now with a friend of mine. So th this has already been awesome. I'm looking forward to sharing your heart and your story with our viewers and listeners today. Me too, man. Absolutely. So Todd, for the folks who are tuning in just a couple minutes late, and they may have somehow missed my, my long winded rambling brag sheet of you and where you've been and what you're doing today. If somebody bumped into you in a grocery store and after apologizing for knocking their cart and you make small talk and they tell you what they do. And then they say, Todd, so man, tell me, what do you do, Todd? <laughs> How would you respond to that in the current days that you find yourself living in? Man, that is actually, believe it or not, it's a harder question than you might think. <laughs> like I I have so many hooks in the water right now. Uh, but uh, the real truth is I would tell people first and foremost, man, I'm a, I'm a husband and a dad. And I, you know, I, I got a big family. Uh, I've been married a long, long time. Well, I mean, by today's standards, it's, it's 22 years, pretty long time. You know, I spent a lot of years in traditional, like what people might envision when somebody said you're a minister. I spent a lot of years doing that. But now, man, really right now, I'm working in music. I'm out there kind of pounding the pavement and knocking on doors and recording songs and doing shows and writing books, <laughs> which is so nuts. But, you know, the, so a little bit of everything, to tell you the truth. Well, it's awesome. It is the right work being done by the right man. So uh, I'm going to... I'm going to leave Nashville, leave the recording studios for a moment and, and take the truck back down to Mississippi okay. where this thing all began. You grew up in the South. You grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. You grew up singing, man. So I'd like you to take us back to a little A-frame house on Mound Street and talk a little bit about what your life was like growing up. And if you know, it's hard when, when I do these podcasts, I don't want to speak in terms that people don't understand, you know, but first of all, the Bible Belt is a very real thing. It's, a, it's like a very real place. And I grew up there. And the, I'm actually still living in the Bible Belt, technically. But, but when I grew up, first of all, my mom and dad, I would say, were not fully like committed church folks in the very first part of my life. But mm -hmm. my grandmother, I mean, I called her granny, my grandmother, my dad, my dad was like an interior designer, decorator kind of guy. He did paint and wallpaper and drywall and all those things. And my mom worked at a finance company right next to the video store, you know, and my granny would come pick us up for church when mom and dad didn't take us. And I have an older brother, a younger sister, you know, we just kind of lived a regular life aside from that, whether it was mom and dad later on, because my mom and dad did get very involved later on my childhood or my granny early on, man, I was in church and singing in the booster band. <laughs> What, was singing something you only did when you were in the booster band and in church? Or were, were you like, were you guys just singing all the time? Man, up until about a year and a half ago. I mean, unless you count the occasional wedding. And when I say wedding, I mean ceremony, not, not the reception. I mean the ceremony. Uh, unless you count the occasional wedding or something like that. Um, I was either singing at church or a church-sponsored event. And that was it, man. I, I did that my whole life. When did you know? Because... 
you know, I sing in church too. I sing in two places, church and the shower. Yeah, well, I do sing in the shower. Now. <laughs> I'm really good in the shower. I'm really lousy in church, but I think if you want to participate, you participate, man. So yeah, I, I all the way. Anyway, and my kids look up at me like, dad, please stop. But I go. <laughs> so uh, when did you realize though, that you had a voice? I hope people hear my heart in that I'm not trying to come across as like pitiful or I'm just being honest with you. Up until recent events, I don't think I did think that I had a voice that a larger market really wanted to hear. Uh, but as far as knowing that I was able to sing, like I'm, I can sing, and I, even even today, that's pretty much the only thing I can do. <laughs> but, but I can do that. Uh, if I, I I would say it was probably maybe my teen years, maybe preteen, but really through my teen years, I kind of really got a grasp on like this is something that I feel like I'm good at, and I. I really explored it like I would try to emulate people, you know, and probably then. Who was your guy back then that you were emulating? Oh, man, that's really hard to say because I, I mean, I would emulate a lot of those like soul singers like Bill Withers and those kinds of people, you know, but I also would try to emulate because, you know, I don't, again, I grew up in the deep south. I still live in Tennessee, which is fully within the it's not like we're half in and half out we're in the deep south you know so um and so i don't know how it is in other parts of the nation as far as living there i've been there but where where we came from there really was like this remarkably unique sound that came like out of the black church you know and i would try to emulate that because that was so beautiful to me and then I mean, yeah, some of the listeners may have to forgive me, but I feel like most of them will be on my team here. I grew up in the South, so, man, I like Clay Skinner, and I like Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone is offended by that, they're not—they're already not listening to this show. Oh, I think yeah. <laughs> Leonard Skinner, man, rock on, brother. And, and uh, yeah, great music right there. You, you were talking a moment ago about learning to really find your voice, and you, you did so in your teen years. Mm-hmm. That's not the only thing you did in your teen years. You found a girl named Brooke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was friends with your, I think, little sister at the time. Is that yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. They they started coming, her family, and when I say they, her family and her, they started coming to our church. Uh, and I was kind of interested right away, but man, she was like, no way. Like she was not into me at all. <laughs> and you you did not really because I read your book recently. It's a beautiful book. We'll talk about that near the end, but you didn't talk much in the book about what it was about her that immediately drew you in. So I'm curious, what, what was it in her that, you know, your sister was bringing around all kinds of girls all the time. Yeah. What was it about her that you're like, man, this, there's something different about Brooke. First of all, being a teenage boy, she was, she was striking. I mean, she had these big, beautiful blue eyes. I've always been a sucker for a dark haired girl and she had this dark brunette hair, you know? So that's one thing. But then Brooke is really engaging and funny. Also, she's compassionate. In all honesty, from the time I met her to to today, she's always been sort of out of my league. And that's kind of intriguing to a guy too. (laughs) You and I both kicked out, out kicked the coverage. So we we share We share that truth about ourselves too. We also both got married in November. Oh. Uh, you're a couple of years before me, November 14th, I think 1998. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 98. What do you remember? Now, back in 1998, the world was kind of right in the beginning stages of this revolution of technology and all these things that we can do now. But 
back then, I, I still sang a lot by cassette tape. I had a song, a surprise song I was singing to her in our ceremony, and the tape got lost. <laughs> and so th thankfully, we had like a Christian bookstore that had the tape. And so we had sent someone for it. But while they were gone to get me a second copy, we found the tape. And so that's really the first thing I remember. And the next thing I remember is when she rounded the corner. I'm a sentimental guy anyway, I would say. But I'm also a guy that when when a huge weight is lifted off of me, I like break down. I don't know. It's like been that way my whole life. And so when she rounded the corner, I started crying and I don't think I quit until the ceremony was <laughs> over, you know, even through my song, I think I was halfway crying. For my listeners, this is a big burly guy. Good looking man. <laughs> He's got a beard. He's a man's man. <laughs> and I can just imagine this big old bear crying on the altar as she turns the corner. Uh, the song you sang, I think was Grow Old With Me. Did she know that was coming? Nowadays, she sort of acts like she kind of had some hints, but even if she knew a song was coming, I don't think she knew what it was. I strategically tried to find a song that was really meaningful to she and I and for a wedding ceremony, but also one that she wouldn't guess, you know, mm -hmm. if she were to try to guess, because we had a lot of different songs like The Other Side of Me, that Michael W. Smith song. And then, of course, back in those days, Titanic. 90% of our wedding ceremony was Titanic music, you know? So I didn't want to do the heart will go on, you know? <laughs> that would have been something, man. Could have done the, the, the scene where your arms are out in front of the Titanic, man. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much that surprised me as I learned more about your story. Because I think we judge, we've, so all of us, we judge the book by the cover. And we oh, see yeah, a guy yeah. taking his victory lap on The Voice, not realizing the chapters that led up to that story. Right, right. And so then even reading about the wedding, reading about the courtship, reading about you singing the song, I kind of assumed then, then they got on the horse and they started riding off into the sunset and, yeah. and not at all. Not quite, yeah. Pretty quickly, quickly uh, that's the journey you were on, but Brooke was on a very different one. Right, right. Yeah, she was. Um, people always give you this warning about the first year. Our first year was okay, but rolling into year and a half, two years and third year it, it got pretty rough and Brooke was um Brooke was not really feeling it anymore uh as far as being married and I don't like to really tell her account too much because you know I don't want her to feel like I'm attacking her because I played my own role in that let me just say mm -hmm. uh oh man it's been almost 20 years ago now she filed for divorce and she was done you know so we could spend a lot of time talking about your role in leading up to that file and uh, and that decision if you'd like. But I think yeah. maybe more importantly, it's this. How do you begin to put together a relationship after it's fractured seemingly beyond compare, be, beyond repair? As she filed and as she and you begin parting ways, your hearts are both broken and it doesn't seem like it's going to come back together. And yet, like you said, two decades later, it's better now than it's ever been. Yeah. What began to change in both of your lives? From my perspective now, uh, I don't know how to put it except to say you have to find a way to live with that pain. It's not that you have to be defined by it, but it is present. One of the issues that I've, I've taken through the years, even in the church, is a lot of times they want you to have so much faith that you sort of ignore the pain. Totally. But I think it's important that we paid attention to that. We had to be very deliberate, even her, because, you know, in practical terms, She's the one who wanted to end the marriage and she's the one who filed for divorce and I was not, you know, and so in practical terms, it would seem like she sort of owed me something when she came back. Yeah. But, but really we had to both be very deliberate about 
what we owed the other person. I was hurt. And so I would say sarcastic, hurtful things to her. And one day she just had to tell me like, Todd, that's not, not okay. You know? And so I had to find a way to just, even when I wanted to say those things, it's not, it was a very intentional process and it takes time. I like to say this, what happens when things like that happen is kind of like you get this big sack of rocks on your back and what you want to do is just drop the sack. And that's what everybody wants to do. But what happens more often is you just drop a rock at a time. And before you know it, the weight's gone, but it took some time, you know? I do know. And I think all of our listeners know, and I think coming through COVID, there's so many folks struggling in relationships, whether that's professional or with a spouse or the lack of a spouse or partner. A lot of folks are struggling right now. I read, and I forget if it was you or your wife's description, because in the book, it's kind of a back and forth, almost conversation, but you're having this little, uh, you're still upset, man. You're still broken. You're still mad. There seems still like there's not like, like love is not really in the room yet, but your child is little Egan's in the room and uh, you're separated and little Egan comes over to you and puts your hand on mama's hand. So little Egan's a baby, man. That's your first child. But this child's able to see and feel what maybe what you both needed right then at that time. Yeah. There are parts of your life that you'll never forget. And that's one of those, honestly, man, if I look back 20 years, I would say, I hate to admit it, but I would say a solid 80% of everything that happened in my life, I've probably already forgotten. (laughs) But like, I will never forget that he came and put our hands on, on one another. And it's not like, everything fell together then, but it was kind of like a, what are we doing here? You know, this is, I'm thinking Todd and how hurt I am. She's thinking Brooke and how much she wants to leave or whatever life she would rather have. And we're not even thinking that we have this family. And I hate to admit that, but that's the truth. When you get into those moments like that, if you're not careful, man, you're just fully selfish. Well, it's perfect because it ties into a quote that I wrote down from your book. And it was, if love is all about you, it is not love. Right. Tell me what that means to you. If if love is all about you, it is not love. When people say love is not what you say, it's what you do. I really do believe that. If we're not careful about love, we always see love as it relates to how people love us. But really the truth about love is love should be about what I give and how I give it away and not how other people give it to me. It's not that they shouldn't love us well. I believe they should. Love is meant to be given away. Now, when you receive it, it's great, uh, but it's really meant to be given. Well, dude, during this season, you are a dad, you are a spouse, you're working through structural issues in your marriage and you're broken. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of all of this, you're a pastor, you're, you're preaching on Sundays, dancing around the altar and encouraging people to, to uh, realize that God is still God. And I, I read that and just as a speaker, I have the honor of, of speaking to organizations and teams, but there are days where I'm just like wiped, right. whether it's something going on with my mom and dad, and I'm just, just kind of saddened by that or something going on with my own family or whatever, the world. And it's hard to be on in front of a group of strangers. These are people who know you and they know your family and they have a sense for what's going on. During that season, how did you find the joy and the tenacity to keep standing in front of folks and, and sharing the good word. Oh man. First of all, I don't know that I was on, (laughs) you know, I hate to say that, but second of all, and I realize everyone is kind of living their own unique experience. So I'm not trying to like blanket statement here, 
But for me, I have found through the years that even in ministry, and it was a risky thing to do, that it was better to just be sort of transparent. I believe that discretion is the better part of valor. So I never tell everything, you know, but I found I found it was better to be transparent. Even when I became lead pastor of the church, the things that I spoke on Sundays, including in this, this time in my life that we're talking about, a lot of times that just came from my experience and sometimes my pain and a lot of times my suffering. But ultimately, I sort of reached a place where I thought to myself, I had to put my money where my mouth is. You know, I was like, do you believe in this same God that you preach? Because if you do, then if you hold back or refuse to do it because of you and what you're going through, then he's not really who you say he is anyway. That was, man, that was kind of a harsh realization that I had to come to. But you you also had the power, I guess, of a, a friend called a journal that helped you work through some of your ideas. And you, you ended one of your journal entries with the statement, your suffering is not forever right. and your suffering is not for nothing. Tell me what that means. And and before you tell us what that means, just recognize there's so many folks out there right now, just beat down, just just tired, man. So tell us what that statement meant when you wrote it. I'm in a place right now in my life where I want everyone to know that wherever you are in your faith walk or complete lack of faith, I don't want them to discredit what I'm about to say, because that did come from a passage of scripture, which the scripture says that the suffering that you're in right now is light and it's temporary and it's working for you an eternal weight of glory. First of all, when it says it's temporary, I had to remember like, this is not forever. It's mm-hmm. not this. I'm not going to live in this forever. Whatever cycle of pain I may have been in at the time, I'm not going to live in this forever. It will end. And then it's not for nothing. It's birthing something. I think we play a role in that. We have to own our part in it. We all have the choice to sort of wallow in it for the rest of our lives if we want to, but that's not the purpose of it. Even if you are a person that really is not a person of faith, every one of us, it's demanded of us that we know there's a legacy, good or bad, that we're going to leave behind. Your suffering can turn into really a powerful legacy. What are some of the gifts that you've seen, and not to stay here much longer, but this is the final point around suffering. (laughs) What are some of the gifts that you've, you've noticed that have grown from, whether it's been your suffering, your marital suffering, or from even the suffering of someone that you've loved in the community? You've been invited bedside again and again as people struggle through their own storms. What's some of the gifts that um, you've witnessed in their lives come out of suffering? For me, one of the things that suffering, whether it was my own or someone else's, has given me is beautiful. I consider it beautiful and remarkable perspective on life. When I was in full-time ministry and it was time for me to move on to what was next, I remember telling the people that I had served for years and years and years and years. Man, I was at that church since I was 14, you know? I remember telling them, I don't think I'd ever told them from the pulpit that there came times in their circumstance where I didn't know what to do. What I would do very often is I would just show up and that's Mm -hmm. all I knew to do. Then they came to me saying how meaningful it was that someone just showed up. You know, that someone was just there. I gained such a great perspective, man, from my own suffering, from other people's suffering that we matter. Like, even if you're in pain right now, and even if you don't feel like it's worth it at all, it does matter a lot. It really does. And also, you matter a lot. And also, your family, man, and the people in your life, if we could see what we have, even if it is just painfully normal, as a gift, we have to understand there's a lot of people that just wish their life was normal. And so it's a gift, man, that we have. 
you mentioned there, Todd, about not always knowing what to say. And so you would just show up. You would right. just show up. And when you said that, I was thinking about my mom and dad. And, and when they went through the experience they went through with their little boy named John and five and a half months in burn care. And the fear every single night of wondering when they went back into the room the following day, would their son even be there when right. they arrived? Like just the, the, the constant ache of wondering would their boy live. Right. And my mother told me the story about uh, one night she was just done. Like she just given in tears, fear, anger, all these emotions, didn't know where to turn. It's two o'clock in the morning. She can't sleep. She walks into the hallway and I get emotional because I've never told this story before, but there was this young teacher. His name was Don Lee. He taught my brother high school, probably high school English. It's two o'clock in the morning and Don Lee is just sitting in the waiting room in darkness but there to be present in the, in the chance that this woman has anything that she might want to bounce off of him or just to physically be with, with her. And I, I think we underestimate the power of just showing up and being present with another human being when they're struggling. So uh, thank you for reminding me cool. of Don and my mom and what great leadership has always looked like. So dude, we, we could spend a lot of time on this topic of struggle and suffering. We could spend a lot of time on you having two kids and then three and then four and then five and then adopting six and seven from Korea and then having an eighth child and then an illness, like unbelievable story. I guess the only question I'll ask you around your kids and it's one you're asked frequently. And I think it's one you like being asked. You have five children. You're on a pastor's salary. You've got nothing, man. You're living paycheck to paycheck. You say, why, why go through another adoption? Why go through that effort of, uh, of bringing more kids into your life? And I feel like if we share the truth, it'll free other people to share the truth. You know, the real yep. truth is with me, when my wife reached out to me about adopting the first time I said yes, but I kind of felt like it would be one of those things. It sort of just fizzled out and went away, but it, it did not. And the truth is with, with our oldest daughter, we just felt like it was a part of our life. Like adoption was a part of our life, you know, and that's really it. We clearly didn't have fertility issues. We, we didn't have an, you know, some epiphany, you know, we didn't have like wake up in the middle of the night with a beam of light. Having said that though, the truth is, yeah, we didn't make very much money. You know, we didn't have a lot after our oldest, our oldest daughter. Uh, we just, we just fundraised, you know, we sold t-shirts and we sold spaghetti plates and we had we had a GoFundMe and we had uh, garage sales and, and you name it. She came home. Uh, she was home eight months and we found out she had a sister. And thank God I said yes before I really thought it through. When you think of adoption, they think of the expense and you don't realize there's, oh man, the home studies and all, especially when it's international, because both of our girls are international. And there's so much paperwork and fingerprints and all of this so I let her handle all of that. I did the money and um, it just wasn't happening, man. And I was frustrated and scared and frankly, fairly faithless. I got a phone call from the agency one day and an excruciatingly long story short, uh, man, someone just a stranger, total stranger, just paid all those fees. And that's, it's a lot of money. Paid them all, man. One of many miracles, part of your story, you talked early in your book about if you only saw us on stage at The Voice, you missed the real story. That's you true. missed the real story of us. And so that, that's where you just shared is such a good one. It's so rich. And since we're talking about you on stage and since I whispered out the, the, the title, The Voice, yeah. it's something that uh, has brought you into the limelight uh, around the United States and around the world. When did you first become 
even familiar with the idea of, of nominating yourself to be part of the voice. This is the story that I tell everywhere I can go, because a lot of people, you know, you see, you really do see this highlight reel on social media and on TV. And, and so in, I would say sometime around 2017 is when I knew that for whatever reason, I, I still tell people it may have been a midlife crisis. I don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, I knew that something had to change and I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. Um, uh, and that being just like the lead pastor of the church and all, and it had, and I'll, I will never stop harping on this. It, it had nothing to do with them. The church people were good to me. I'm still friends with them. The church, even though we're not there anymore in that role, they're still great, you know, wonderful people. Uh, but I don't know, man, it was something in my heart. Like I had, I couldn't keep going like I was going. I felt like I was doing the church a disservice. I felt like I was doing myself and my family a disservice. I felt like, I mean, to, to use really plain, like, uh, you know, layman's terms, I felt like a full on loser, you know, like I had to, something had to switch. So I was, I was digging in all these little outlets. I even looked at becoming a barber, you know, um, but in the meantime, I started trying to teach myself how to play piano. And I, I still suck at it, by the way, but I did try, you know, and I still, if I'm writing by myself, I have a little keyboard right over here. I can bang out the chords and say, this is the way I want the song to go, you know. And um, so I would get on Instagram and I would just sing one minute covers of different songs, all kinds of songs, gospel songs and hymns. And I sang Cindy Lauper. I did True Colors. You know, I did Poison. I did Every Rose Has Its Thorn. You know, an acquaintance of mine who messaged me the a link to audition for The Voice. I signed up, you know, I said, OK, that was months before the actual open call audition. Months passed. And so ultimately, by the time the audition came, I had decided not to go, you know, and I just wasn't going to do it. I really felt like it'd be another reason for me to think I was a failure, you know, if I did it. And my wife, man, thank God for her, you know, uh, she was very insistent that I go. And so ultimately I did. And the rest is kind of history. <laughs> well, we're going to slowly walk together through history. I'm going to, I'm going to begin with a quote from you regarding the Atlanta audition first. Okay. And then ask you to tell me like, dude, what was that like? So here, here's the quote. Okay. I did not think going was worth the drive. And it's yeah. not even that far of a drive. I did not think going was even worth the drive. How could anything come of it? As I stood in line for hours with thousands of other hopefuls, I was frustrated with the line, with the waste of time, but mostly with myself. Yeah. First of all, I was really annoyed. And that's just the truth, man. And that's, to me, once again, I am a man of faith. And to me, man, that's just the grace of God, you know, for it to end how it ended. Because I was just really annoyed. I was frustrated. Um, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, you know how you do sometimes you're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? Because my thing is, and I, again, I don't really mean this in a self-deprecating kind of way. It's just how I felt, you know, I, I didn't feel particularly pitiful. So I, let, I, let me put that out there first. But I did kind of think, Todd, you are at the time, I'm like, Todd, you are 41 years old you're out here with all these young people and they're all, well, I don't know about all of them, but all the ones I could hear, they can sing well, you know, and, and also why are you not just okay? You know what I mean? Like, 
uh, again, you know, thank God that he's good to me because I, it was ultimately, I feel like it was him trying to shift some things around, but I felt like I should have been grateful. Like, Todd, why are you just not grateful for the life that you have? Why are you not just okay? You know, yep. all of those things were going through my mind. That was a, the morning part of that day was fairly frustrating. <laughs> So take, take me through the line, slowly sneaking in. All these 18, 19, 20-year-old men and women are going on. They're killing it. They're walking off stage thinking, I just killed it. You know, yeah. I'm number one, and I proved it again. And then in walks this old man. I mean, just ancient, 41 years old, bent over his shoulders, untucked T-shirt, whatever it was. Yeah. What was it like to stand in front of a group of judges? And uh, first, what was that like emotionally? And secondly, what song did you choose for the Atlanta audition? The way they do that is they kind of break you down into groups. And then your group goes in and there's really uh, just an, a representative from The Voice in there who, I mean, they never really gave us the skinny on how they do it, but I'm assuming they're sort of trained in, you know, what they're looking for. And now it was, it was broke down, broke down. I saw so many people just leave disappointed. And you're literally like, oh, there was a lady that was part of my group and she was like a hardcore Debbie Downer. And I'm like, number one, why are you here? And number two, why, how is it that I ended up sitting right next to you? <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm already struggling, you know? So we go in, man. And, uh, and I, I would love to say that I had a really refined sort of process, but what I thought was a lot of people love it even though I don't do it on stage or anything, it's mostly, mostly in the car and stuff. A lot of people love it if I do Stapleton, you know? And so I thought I'll pick a Stapleton song. You get 30 seconds. And so I thought I'm, I'm going to do Broken Halos, but I'm going to start at the good part. You know, I didn't start at the beginning. I, I started at the, uh, don't go looking for the reason. I fully expected the girl to send us out and say, thanks for coming. But that was not the case. Uh, she liked it. She liked it. You get the call back. Talk about it. You know, I'm just going to fast forward the tape here. We're going to go back to late 1990s. We do not have CDs or digital music. We're on the tape, the, the, the cassette. So we're going to fast forward the cassette out to California, out to the live uh, actual edition, okay. national television tuning in. For those who do not follow the show, who are the four judges? My season, they were Blake Shelton, John Legend, Nick Jonas, and Kelly Clarkson. These are names that my father and mother know and they don't follow mainstream media like so yeah. these are big time stars their backs are to you when you begin and and for those who don't follow the show at all todd tell us tell us what happens as if they like you what would have happened uh so yeah so the way that the the voice works is the reason they call it the voice is because your uh, your initial audition is based purely on your voice it's they can't say like look at you and say wow this person is beautiful or and marketable you know uh they only hear your voice they don't know who you are they don't know how old you are you know uh and in some cases you know they don't know if you're a man or a woman you know the way your voice sounds they don't know uh so their backs are to you and when you sing at some point during the song or not <laughs> like if they like you and they want you to join their team for the show they they hit their button and their chair spins around and then they can see who you are and that and so that's kind of how that process works how nervous were you before you walked from backstage into the bright light oh dying 
I was dying. I'm not even kidding. Like there's such a buildup, you know, such a huge buildup to that moment. Your blind audition, there's even more of a buildup than any other, including the finale, any other part of the show. Your your blind audition, there's this huge buildup to it. And I was really very, very nervous because a lot of people, and they're right. Let me just say that. These people are right. I was actually, I should have listened to them. But a lot of people are like, if you feel confident in your song, then that's good enough. And I did feel confident in my song, right. but I don't know. It was just, uh, it was, it, uh, there was a lot to it, but frankly, when I got out there, I, once I got to the stage, I was still nervous, but I don't know why it was better. And I always think maybe it was because, um, you, there's no turning back from that moment. You got to do it. You walk out on stage, man, <laughs> it's silence, you know, it's just a pin drop, you know, now I was there, got to do it. If you're willing, you may either speak the words or sing the words, but uh, rather than telling us what the name of the song is, would you either sing or say the first oh, oh, sentence man, yeah. of the song? I sang, I know it's late. I know you're weary. I know you're playing. Don't include me. Still. Oh, is so bad, was it? Both of us falling. We've got tonight, babe. Why don't you stay? Not only are they turning, you're hearing the buzzers, you're hearing the audience go crazy. You're seeing the video of your wife who is freaking out because if she's at all realistic, she realizes that may not happen. They may not turn around. Yeah. But they did. And then John Legend turns around. He's the final one. It's it's just, it's good TV. It's emotional. And dude, what I love, I love that song you chose. I love the voice that you used to share it. I love your joy. And I think what the judges heard in addition to your gritty, beautiful voice was the joy within it. Yeah. That's kind of why I always give that backstory starting in 2017 is because I'm, I'm not crazy. I knew in that moment, like, this is your shot. Like, this is, this is your shot, Todd. Like you've been knowing you need this shift. And I always love to say that God loved me enough to give me the grand gesture that he knew I needed because I'm a safe bet guy. Man, you ended up winning the show. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time celebrating that other than the fact that, hey, well done. Good and faithful. Really well done. That's really phenomenal. I'm going to share with you as we begin wrapping up our time together, a couple of quotes. And I'd like you to tell me and share with our audience what they mean. They're pretty okay. self-explanatory, but they're beautiful. So here we go. Number one. And these are your words. Okay. On paper, our lives look very full, but hardly remarkable. Unless you look for the small wins, huge achievements get noticed. But if Brooke and I had waited around to find joy until we got the big win, we would have missed out on the amazing life we've lived. What does that mean? I don't want to pretend as if we've done a really remarkable job at it all the time but we have had to pay attention to all the things that are happening now that are worthwhile because i mean had i waited around man oh lord i mean even even if we made it through 2002 yeah. i don't know if I, I still don't know if we would have survived in our marriage you know because a lot of people think well you know you had that thing in 2002 and that was like the big battle oh man that was one of them <laughs> You know, we had a few more. I'll tell you some advice that I will give people if you have the right heart about it. Instead of just seeing every day, like day to day, mundane, take a minute and look at your life collectively and how far you've come. 
I always say like to us, it's, it, it's like nothing, but everybody else seems to think it's like really remarkable, <laughs> like this life that we have, you know? I do. And I have other quotes to share. I know that we're beginning to bump toward the end of our time together. Right. One thing I'm, I'm going to ask for a huge favor at the end. So um, yeah. you've said, this is a quote from you. I can't tell you the number of times I've sung at the bedside of the sick and of the dying. When my heart is breaking to see someone hurting or in pain, the best thing I know to do is to sing. Right. And we, we got people tuning in from 50 different states. And I believe at last count, 75 different countries, every episode who uh, are struggling, who are hoping, who are dreaming, who are striving, who are wondering, who are curious, who are filled with anxiety or worse. They're just, we're all in these various places of life. And one of them today is my favorite podcast listener. Uh, there are two of them, actually, my mom and my dad. My dad recently had surgery. He is struggling. He's had Parkinson's disease for 30 years. He is bedside. He is struggling and uh, he is listening. So I, I was wondering if you could do me as we get ready to move into the final seven questions together. Sure. Would you just would you just share with Denny O'Leary, one of my heroes in life, an incredible human being who's recovering today, any song, even if it's super short, that comes to your mind and heart right now and, and just sing over him? Oh man, let him take his own perspective on who he's thinking about when I sing this, all right? But I'll sing one that everybody knows. And so maybe the people can listen, listening can sing along. Lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on my friends that is the great and he'll hate that adjective todd tillman singing to denny o'leary and susan o'leary caregiver and amy one of the great podcast listeners who's with mom and dad today well and tell them, man i love them and i'm praying for them too well you just told them yourself man because i'm oh, telling yeah. you they really are listening to you and, I, and i'm grateful Todd, in addition to the truth that we need one another and we are called to be our brothers and sisters keepers, the way we wrap up every single podcast is with seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. What is the most impactful book you have ever read? Uh, aside from the Holy Bible, uh, honest to God, man, uh, the impactful, most impactful book I've read is a series, The Lord of the Rings. I love the symbolism in, in that series, man. What is it about the symbolism you love? Clearly the ring is power and, and it can overtake us and, and making a name for ourselves and being in charge and being the person in power. And that can overtake us if we're not careful, you know, but really what I really love about that is I love Samwise Gamgee. Everybody needs a friend who's willing to carry the load, even go under the bus for us sometimes when we throw them there, but they still love us and they stick with us, man. And I just love that. And I, Man, I, I think that's one of my most favorite things about that whole, and the movies too. I love them all. I love it all. <laughs> what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little guy growing up in Mississippi that you oh. wish you exhibited as brilliantly today in, in Tennessee? 
man, I would probably say the same thing that everybody would say is just faith, man. When you're a kid, you believe anything and you believe anything's possible. Well, if you believe you can leave Meridian, Mississippi, drive through the night, sleep in your car was your plan, yeah. and then go on to the voice and actually have some success, I would suggest, my dear friend, you've got some faith. <laughs> Question number three is if your home caught fire and your children and your bride and your pets are all out safe, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one thing you would run back in and save? Either either a photo album or my laptop with the photos on it. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the others. One so because man, those you know, they're, they're those people. A lot of those people are gone. I'll never see see them again. That's all I have. Todd, if you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? My granny. 100%. I, we wouldn't even have to talk. What, what, I just sit there. Yeah, just sit there, be in her presence. Yeah. It's powerful. What's the best advice granny or your parents or your wife or anybody else has ever given you? Man, that's a hard one too. I've gotten so much good advice in my life. I wish I would have applied it all. <laughs> it's, it's just on, on a grand scale and on a small scale, you're not going to agree with everyone. But that doesn't mean that they are any less deserving of the fullness of your love and respect. You know, I do believe that trust is earned, but I think respect is supposed to be freely given. And so is love. Go to the tattoo parlor today, listeners, and get that one on your left bicep. That is, that is a <laughs> great comment. So thank you for the reminder. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? You're, you're dating this girl. You're trying to engage with this girl that eventually is going to become your wife. What advice would you whisper into his ear? I would tell my 20 year old self, a man, probably more than one thing, but I think honestly, the one thing that I might would, if I could only choose one thing, believe in yourself and go for it earlier. I, I was way too concerned with what everybody else expected of me. Now I do believe God's timing is perfect. If I'm faithful, I'm where I'm supposed to be. The right thing will happen at the right time in the right place, you know, uh, if you're faithful. But uh, that's probably what I would say. Believe in yourself a little earlier than you did and go for it. Todd Tillman, the author of the recent book, Every Little Win, the most recent winner of The Voice, the final question is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? If I die today and they can put one sentence on my gravestone, uh, it's really no hesitation. I just wish my, I hope my gravestone says Todd loves you or he loved you. You know, and that's it. Todd, I, when I saw the judges turn around, I think they turned around for the voice, but I think they stuck around for the heart and the joy and the love that you exuded, not only through that song, but through your life, man. It has made you a winner. It made you a winner long before the voice recognized it, and it will continue to carry you forward into the days to come. So I, I want to thank you for your example and for your love. You have loved well. Man, thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. You can have anybody on here. So I really appreciate it. Well, my friends, there is only one Todd Tillman. We got him on the Live Inspired Show. My name is John O'Leary. That is Todd Tillman. And this is your day. Live Inspired. Hey, you know we rolled the dice. And for a while, you know it all felt right. Then we found out we were firing dice, baby. It didn't work out like we thought it could. At its worst, it still was something good And if you ask me if I think I would again I'd do it in a heartache I'd do it 
Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed Todd Tillman as much as I enjoyed not only meeting him, reading about him, listening to him, but now as I've grown to get to know him personally to become his friend. You may have noticed this week that the outro music was a little different. It's one of Todd's most recent singles. It's titled A Heartache, and it's available anywhere that you get your music. So anywhere you do get your music, check it out, A Heartache. What do I love most about Todd? Well, I think it's this. The man has turned over his life to be in the will of God. Whatever that looks like, whether it's in his marriage, for his children, in an audition, singing to a lady bedside near the end of her life. When I put him on the spot a moment ago and say, hey, Todd, will you sing something for my dad? Yeah, sure, John. Yes. His answer to life is yes. I find that to be incredibly inspiring. It was one of my takeaways, and uh, I'm sure it was one of yours as well. So my friends... If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor, subscribe to the Live Inspired Podcast wherever you're listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure you rate it, review it, and of course, share this episode with friends, with neighbors, with your work colleagues, etc. These seemingly small steps can help us make a mighty movement to improve the show and help change and elevate the lives of those that we are called to serve. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.